Hello everyone, it's March 14th, 2023. So this week we have the findings on another failed rocket launch, the VV-22 Vega C mission. And since it's the 400th episode, we're also gonna talk about STS-400, a very cool shuttle mission that didn't happen, but is still worth delving into. Let's go and lift off. Welcome to episode 400 of the Global Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Yep, so this is 400. So uh, for for this uh, milestone, uh, we have a little extra something planned that we're going to talk about. We're just going to talk about STS-400 since, you know, the numbers match. So Yeah, Dennis of late has become our shuttle expert. As you can see, I did the uh, the dog leg work on it, perhaps. Oh, boy. There you go. All right, now we need to explain that. Are we that, still, talk, are we still yeah, talking yeah, about that? Yeah, now we have that? to explain that. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we were talking about dog leg maneuvers, but specifically why the H-3 mission that, you know, was not successful, had to do a dog leg, and we can't quite figure out why, but if anyone knows, uh, just give us an yeah. email. Yeah, if you if if you haven't seen the footage, it's really good. I just saw it when David and Dennis mentioned it uh, as we were getting ready. And like, yeah, it, it they have a telephoto camera shot that actually captures the beginning of the dogleg maneuver. And like, it really looks like a thing turns left it, or I guess turns right, if I'm remembering correctly. Like it, it, just look, it looks like it does a 90 degree turn and keeps firing its engines and david like you said like when you see that normally you expect to see the vehicle break up uh but this is like totally intentional and and normal it's really cool really dramatic even though unfortunately the second stage didn't ignite and they had to destroy it with the uh, flight termination work uh software but uh or system but yeah but uh, chris in discord uh who you know has a lot of experience with launching rockets uh says that you got a dogleg if you want to go polar or sun synchronous from a mid inclination range and so it really does seem mm. to be related to the orbit pretty cool because yeah because right that was the other big news is that they put a earth uh or a, yeah an earth observing satellite on there which was destroyed and then people realized that it was i think a quarter of a billion dollars like it was uh, in the 200 million range at least this was the inaugural launch, right? And this was the mm. maiden flight. Yeah. Why would they do that? That doesn't seem like a good idea to me. What? Put something expensive on there? Yeah, for your first launch of a rocket. Well, I mean, it's not it's not the agency's call, right? It's the operator's call. Well, right, but why would they do that? <laughs> yeah, it sucks to lose a payload, but like, it's not like we should never put payloads on any vehicle that we're not confident on. You just look at it like any insurance policy. Like, yeah, is this is this worth the risk? Sure. Okay, let's go. You know, best case scenario, you get launched earlier than you expected. Worst case scenario, you have to build another one. And for especially like an observation satellite, like they've already got two up there, right? ALOS 2 is still up there. Is ALOS 1? No, I think ALOS 1 died, but ALOS 2 is still up there. So it's, you know, it's like a fleet. So like a small beginning fleet, like, yeah, okay. Uh, not that big of a deal. I guess if you're paying the insurance either way... Like you said, it doesn't make much of a difference, <laughs> right? So if it's not critical to your business, I mean, you don't time, you don't put time critical. right. You don't put a JWST on a brand new rocket, right? So this was officially, even though it had a payload, right? This was designated test flight one. Right now, they've got an ALOS four manifested for test flight two. You think you think that's going to change? <laughs> Maybe. Well, no, now, now they know how to prevent this failure, so it's even safer <laughs> next time. There you go. So, 
So the VV-22 investigation. So this is the Vega C launch that happened, what, in December of last year? And they had some second stage issues, which seems to be a recurring theme for rocket launches these days. I feel like that one and not just the H3, but wasn't there another one recently? I can't even uh, think was, of them all. Was Virgin's a second stage? I mean, like, there's so many ones. ABL's was first stage and Firefly's was also first stage. Like, there's just been so many failures. I can't remember a rocket that... You know, isn't yeah. a Falcon Nine or a uh, or a <laughs> Russian yes, one or a Chinese one that's launched it that like made it to orbit? Well, if the commonality between all these things is that it's not a Falcon Nine, mm. starts to mm-hmm. a little suspicious. Are you even playing sabotage? <laughs> yeah, SpaceX went and hired uh, hired the uh, the sniper that took out yeah yeah they hired oh. the sniper uh the amos mission or whatever it was yeah but yeah so this was a second stage failure and i guess we should point out that the vega c so this is uh i think i believe four stages total the first mm-hmm. three are all solid rocket motors um so solid 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 and then i think it's pronounced uh avum or avum the avum upper stage but i'm not sure how to say it, but that's a it's it's on a mono it's it's an onomatopoeia. It's a boom. A boom. And it's worth noting that the first and second stages are both uh, a new solid rocket that they developed, uh, and then the the third stage uh, is the the third stage Vega rocket again, and then the fourth stage is an upgraded version of the original Vega's upper stage. And if I remember correctly, these solids are also the strap-on boosters for Ariane rockets. Oh, same thing. I think that's why they were originally called, I think somewhere in the name, because the name of the boosters or the engine is the Zephyro, and it stands for something to do with the zero stage, which I guess is what you could call a booster maybe. Huh. Uh, so it was like the zero stage. I don't, I don't know if this is an issue but uh Ariane uh 6's solid rockets are P P-tw- P120s and um the Vega C's first stage is called the P120C uh P120 common and so I'm not sure if it's a different engine or not oh no no it looks like it's the same thing which is pretty cool yeah that's the, <laughs> that's really cool that's very Kerbal but I mean like <laughs> that's what we've always like that this is a standard that we've always like st- drived after is like let's just have all these different engines and stages that we can put wherever we want and reality tends to be a lot messier than that um so it's really cool when we see that actually happening you start getting those economies mm-hmm. of scale kicking up a little more yep but uh but yeah so in this case what happened was uh the zephyro 40 which is again that second stage it lost it started to lose pressure at 151 seconds after liftoff and apparently it was gradual it was like just like a gradual loss of pressure and then eventually by t plus 207 seconds it became quasi null which i've never heard that term but that yeah. pretty much just means it, it was on a ballistic trajectory so the engines were still going but it wasn't producing any thrust which is crazy to think about you just have you know this big yeah. solid rocket motor venting it's something but it wasn't producing yeah any thrust. it's like it's like yeah. just a transient kind of thing just a smoldering out so clearly that's you know there was a loss of pressure there um and uh it was traced to uh the carbon carbon throat insert um and that had actually very gradually eroded during flight yeah there's some interesting papers that were written on this this is kind of the thing that gets pretty technical so i can't entirely follow but basically there's all kinds of things that can happen to these carbon carbon inserts when they're exposed to you know extreme heat and pressure specifically in this case this was a thermomechanical over erosion um so it had you know eroded too much and i guess it just came down to uh heat and the 
stress imparted, uh, I suppose, like when it says like thermomechanical. What does that mean exactly? I guess just thermo and mechanical. I mean, I, I would expect that it's it's like mechanical properties over thermal condition. So rather than like melting it or causing like what is the thermal? What is the heat doing? It's causing a mechanical failure. I don't think so. It's the overlay of a cyclical mechanical loading that leads to a fatigue of a material with a cyclical thermal loading. So I think it both ha there's mechanical fatigue and there's uh, temperature fatigue. And with those together, you wind up with thermo thermomechanical fatigue, which might destroy a material that Either thermal cycling or mechanical cycling. That makes sense. Wouldn't. Yeah, so it really is just a hyphenated word. Yeah, yeah. you encounter that in other combinations of like things too, where mm -hmm. if there's more than one thing happening, it's like hydrodynamics, magnetohydrodynamics, graviton mm -hmm. magnetohydrodynamics, and you just are adding <laughs> mm -hmm. more things mm -hmm. to it. So yeah, no, you're exactly, yeah. that sounds exactly right. Yeah, and uh, suffice to say, this was uh, this was linked to high porosity that was not detected during testing. So I guess it was just a little bit too porous. Yeah, you can see how that could be a problem. I don't know if there's any photos available of uh, you know like high like high resolution like imagery of uh, what happens to this particular insert during testing. Um, but they did do tests, and they you know that's how they came to that conclusion. However, the tests that were done in order to qualify it were not good enough. And I guess we'll get to that in just a second. So this insert, and I guess a lot of the controversy about this was actually linked to the fact that this was procured from Ukraine, specifically from Yuzhnoye, I think that's the name of the company, in 2017. War was not a factor. This was, you know, back before the invasion. Um, however, uh, according to one article, the lockdown due to the pandemic might have been. Um, I don't know quite how, because it doesn't seem to be the case that that had anything to do with it. It might have happened during testing, right? Because it, it limited a lot of activities. Uh, so if they can't come in and have as many people in the building, it might have affected the testing. Yeah, well, it seems that, however, that the criteria that I believe were established by ESA um, were not the right ones for testing. So it seems that mm. I mean, because like the thing is the Ukrainian space agency, you know, is kind of taking this hard and saying, hey, it's not our fault. And for it, at least from what I can tell, East is saying, well, no, we're not saying that it is. Uh, the problem is just that we didn't give you the right test criteria. It's not Yuzhnoye's fault. They did the test just as they were required to do. It's just that they weren't the right ones. Uh, I believe that it's ESA or is it ESA or I guess I guess Aryan Group or no? I'm not sure who, but someone on that side, you know, they're the ones that determine the exactly what the requirements are. Yeah, they determine what they need from this particular insert since it is their rocket. They have to specify that. And as far as why the previous flight, because it was just one other Vegas C, I believe that launched, and that was a successful launch. It seems to be the case that that particular carbon insert was actually just a little bit that, that just exceeded the requirements. So uh, that's why there was no issue there. And they had done several tests on, you know, or at least I guess like all the previous tests, they had manufactured these things to exceed the requirements. It's just that this one just falls just within range. So, but apparently like Aryan Group will supply the future inserts. And that probably is, I think, to some degree because of the war at this point. And also because uh, I, I suppose they, they, maybe they have lost faith in the supplier. But again, I don't see how that's really their fault. Well, it's, you know, if this, if this material is not appropriate, like it, do, it doesn't really matter what you think of the supplier, like you have to go get another material. Well, I don't know the details. At least I would have thought that maybe the supplier could have supplied, you know, 
yeah. the correct part. I mean, maybe they can, maybe they can't. Maybe they can, and somebody else does it cheaper. Maybe they just can't do it, and so they have to go somewhere else. Like, I, I don't know. Um, Space News reports that that Avia was already looking at, at longer-term options. So it looks mm-hmm. like they were already getting ready to, to move away from Yushinoi. Yeah, but um, this anomaly does not affect the two remaining Vegas. I believe they just have two left of the old ones, and those use uh, the Zephyro 9 and Zephyro 23. Those ones are flight-proven, uh, no issues there. But yeah, so I guess the conclusion for all of this, um, what is the recommendations by the Independent Inquiry Commission? I like how they spell inquiry. I think that's the British way, right? <laughs> inquiry. They say that um, there needs to be additional testing and analysis of the new carbon-carbon material, an additional qualification phase for the Zephyro with the new carbon-carbon material, and then also implement actions to guarantee long-term sustainable and reliable launch of production. So yeah, that's the investigation so far, and it seems to be the correct conclusion. Even though the Ukrainians might disagree, I think that that's, it's pretty safe to say that that's what went wrong. So, mm. But yeah, so anyway, good luck to them in the future. So this week, let's just do two short sweets again. And Dennis, what is the first? Uh, first up, Ibex mission overcomes computer glitch. After three weeks of difficulties where NASA's Interstellar Boundary Explorer, or IVEX, spacecraft was not responding to commands, the mission team did a fire code reset. That is a reset command that triggers a hardware response rather than being processed by the software, which allowed them to regain control. IVEX telemetry now shows the spacecraft behaving normally. Launched on a Pegasus XL rocket in 2008 to high Earth orbit, the mission has been studying the heliosphere as part of a network of spacecraft designed to characterize the solar wind. Uh, after that, uh, ISS dodges a satellite. The ISS had to make an orbital adjustment last week in order to avoid an Argentine Earth observation satellite. The Russian Progress 22, currently docked to station, fired its thrusters for over six minutes, imparting a delta V of 0.7 meters per second in order to raise the station's orbit. It's believed that the satellite would have passed within a few kilometers of the ISS. Just before raising orbit, it was determined that station was actually at no risk, but the maneuver was carried out anyway. The Argentine satellite was believed to be part of a constellation whose decaying orbit will put it in path of possible future conjunctions with the ISS. That sounds like a good idea. So that music, if anyone remembers, is from our Space Hacks segment, which we haven't done one of those in years, but I figured why not repurpose it for a uh, random talk about uh, the STS-400 flight. <laughs> why not? Since this is the 400th episode. Uh, and I guess really it's just an excuse to play the music. Yeah, but yeah, so. <laughs> it good tunes. So uh, real quick, Dennis came up with this idea uh, a good couple of weeks ago because we were like, oh, yeah, episode 400, you know, we got some zeros. Let's maybe we should do something. And Dennis had this idea to talk about STS 400, which is like so cool. And so, Dennis, thank you for doing the work to to make this yeah. happen. This is, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, good job. Oh, of course. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity, like the space to just geek out about <laughs> what, one of these what is really this wild. Show? What is this show, <laughs> if not a space to geek out about random space topics? No, exactly. So, yeah. So, I hope, yeah, in the spirit of that, STS 400 for our episode 400. Perfect. <laughs> because there's some wild stuff here. Like, you could talk about, like, just, you know, the mission, but the, the, the con ops is kind of wild because, well, let's, I guess, 
get into it then. <laughs> what is STS-400? Uh, it's not anything that ever flew, but it was a, uh, a contingency uh, emergency uh, rescue mission. And so the idea is that this is in the era of, uh, this is post-Columbia, right, which, which, you know, suffered catastrophic damage uh, to its thermal protection system and didn't survive re-entry. And so since then, they had changed the way that shuttles would fly. And one of the things was that these were now missions that were mostly going to the ISS. And so ISS could serve as a safe haven uh, while you're up there. And while you approach the ISS, uh, the shuttle would do a basically a 360 degree pitch maneuver to give the uh, uh, people on the station the opportunity to do high resolution imaging of the uh, TPS system and the tiles, make sure there's no catastrophic damage. So there was, yeah, this, this last mission that was still on the manifest was going to be the fifth Hubble servicing mission. And while uh, I think it was Keefe or O'Keefe, uh, right, uh, he tried to cancel it, but it was revived and brought back because uh, Hubble is such an awesome big deal. Uh, Hubble serv uh, uh, HST uh, servicing mission four or SM4 was going to be this fifth one. And it was STS-125. And uh, yeah, so like Ben pointing out with the uh, the numbering scheme of these servicing missions, there was one, there was two, there was three A and three B, and so servicing mission four was the fifth. And uh, as of 2023, final Hubble servicing mission, but possibly not the last one if uh, Starship and uh, the Polaris uh, crew with Isaacman have their way of hopefully uh, boosting uh, Hubble to a higher orbit. And so, okay, so there's three main problems, though, with STS-125, which was going to be uh, flown with Atlantis. And that one, uh, there's no safe haven uh, because you're going to the uh, Hubble, which is at a very different inclination than the space station. The space station is at 51.6 degrees, while Hubble is at 28.5 degrees. So you can't just do a plane change, even if you were to go and try some crazy thing like filling up the entire payload bay with uh, propellant. You just can't do it. There's just not enough Delta V available. Um, might as well try to fly the shuttle to the moon at that point. That's the one issue. Uh, another issue related to the orbits is that it is at a much higher altitude than the station. And so there's a higher risk of uh, MMOD, space debris hitting your spacecraft and, uh, and other stuff. In addition to the altitude, just the fact that you don't have a giant International Space Station uh, that you can kind of hide in its shadow to an extent uh, that also increases the risk. Your, your shuttle's just up there naked. And then finally, you can't really do the rendezvous pitch maneuver, which is that 100 or 360 degree pitch spin uh, to go and get high resolution imaging from the station. So there were these three problems. So they're like, okay, there's going to be risks to it. So one thing that they can do to try to uh, basically check out the TPS system is uh, to do a lower resolution survey using the uh, the OBSS uh, uh, boom. So this was the uh, orbiter boom servicing system. And so basically a long arm you stick at the end of Canada arm and you can basically uh, have it. The, the combined uh, arms are enough to uh, look underneath the shuttle and be able to image uh, its belly and uh, the hard to read, hard to see parts of it. And so, uh, even though this wasn't going to be, this is going to be lower resolution than using the uh, the RPM uh, rendezvous pitch maneuvers kind of uh, approach. It would still be the best that you could do. And um, 
uh, among some of these changes for all the the shuttle flights post Columbia were to put, for example, yellow bands on the uh, the covers of the external tank doors to make sure that they're closed all the way. Because if they don't close, that's going to be a problem, right? These these ET doors on the shuttle. That's right. That's where the uh, the propellant from the external tank gets into the shuttle to uh, power the uh, the SSMEs. The uh, one of the things that was a big risk was uh, loose gap fillers, right? Which we had. You know, we've talked about on the show. I think Ben, it might have been your twist, if way a uh, number of years ago, where there was some protruding gap filler, uh, and they actually, uh, if I remember correctly, right, didn't an astronaut actually go down there and you know basically rip it out <laughs> to uh, make sure that it wasn't going to be a problem on reentry? It, that that sounds familiar, but I don't remember exactly if they decided to pull it out or if they just looked at it and decided not to. Let's see. I'll see if I can find That's it. possible too. Yeah. But to try to you know help out with this, they they specifically uh, uh, bonded uh, the gap fillers. I guess you know put a little more, uh, try to try to get them to stay in place a little more uh, better on the front half of the uh, the belly of the orbiter, as well as over the external tank uh, umbilical doors. And so all in, this was enough to basically uh, take what would otherwise be the uh, the risk of uh, loss of crew of vehicle from either TPS damage or uh, MMOD from about 1 in 130, and uh, by doing this survey, move it to uh, a risk of 1 in 180, which is a good improvement there, but the limit for the shuttle program is uh, a 1 in 200 uh, risk of loss of crew and vehicle, which is kind of terrifying to think about but, yeah um those are still just such unbelievable odds like geez yeah like yeah. scary odds very scary yeah so so a waiver was needed specifically for for sts-125 and and they had right this idea like okay well what if the uh the obss uh doesn't work all right well then you just do it with a camera at the end of the uh the the canadarm the rms um well what if that fails, all right, then maybe you can do a safer-based uh, EVA inspection and actually get a meat bag out there to go and uh, uh, eyeball it or take pictures, I guess, um, which is kind of wild. And so, oh, and thank you, Ben. So two gap fillers were removed during an EVA on STS-144. So this was something, I guess, this was uh, what, something- 114, or, I'm sorry. I'm, sorry, I'm yeah, no, 114, you're good. So this was something that, uh, you know, had they had encountered before. And so the, the worry, right, if you got this little thing sticking out you know, protruding from the belly of the orbiter, that can really screw with the aerodynamics uh, on reentry because you're going at very, very fast speeds, right? And so, yeah. Well, the, the crazy thing is, like, you know, these gap fillers are not going to burn up, um, and they're there to prevent uh, hot air, well, plasma from intruding between <laughs> the heat tiles, the heat shield tiles, and so it seems bizarre to like pull it out. But yeah, we were worried about the eddies and the turbulence that it might cause, which might make things worse. Um, so it, it is kind of weird. And it turns out that it doesn't actually matter. This is one thing that we were a little over concerned about, but it's a fun little corner of weirdness around shuttle. So uh, STS 125, right? It has this higher, you know, risk level than a typical shuttle mission. So what are we going to do? Well, all of the post uh, STS 107 missions, whether you were going to station or, you know, in this case, you still had a launch on need. Uh, mission available or LON. I've never actually heard it said. I don't know if you say LON or if you say LON, but I'm just going to say LON because LON doesn't seem to sound like anything. And so um, a, a, a launch on need mission was typically like, okay, we'll have uh, whatever that next shuttle was manifested. If if you do this 
rendezvous pitch maneuver and see that there is damage to you know the reinforced carbon carbon of leading wings or a entire tiles missing on the belly or something like that okay well the next mission rather than doing whatever it was going to do that shuttle will fly up um, within like 50 to 70 days and essentially rescue the crew and so now you had a special launch on need mission here because uh, you can't really wait 50 to 70 days um, because, again, there's that there is no safe haven. The the crew couldn't of STS-125 couldn't go and just hang out on Atlantis for months. <laughs> there's just not enough. Uh, you can't support humans uh, on board that long on a shuttle. And so that was this concept of STS-400. So while the other launch on need missions had numbers in the 300 range, you know, 325, 326, etc., uh, STS-400 was this unique one to be uh, Hubble's rescue mission. And so uh, this was uh, this fell to Endeavor, the Orbiter Endeavor, and the idea was to take uh, four people from the next. Uh, STS mission 126, which was going to be an ISS resupply and servicing mission, and then instead fly them to the crippled Atlantis orbiter, right? So STS 125, they want to go repair Hubble, but they encounter some problem and they can't make it back safely. So now you're going to go and take, yeah, four people from what would be the next mission and fly them up on Endeavor. And specifically, uh, Chris Ferguson was going to be the commander and Eric Bow the pilot, and then Shane Kimbrough and Steve Bowen would be the uh, other two to round it out. So you'd only bring four people, uh, you know, enough to fit, you know, uh, to leave the entire mid-deck open and available for returning the, the Hubble servicing mission crew. And so that's that's quite a crew, though, right? Those those four guys are some, some real professionals right there. Uh, what was also kind of neat is that since uh, they, while they were preparing for this, uh, STS-124 was going to fly, and so it kind of doubled as a regular uh, launch on need or uh, mission for uh, for that one. And so it, it also had the designation STS-326. And so that would be one of these, you know, wait a few months <laughs> uh, while the crew of STS-124 is potentially, you know, sheltering in the station before they can come back home. And so, uh, yeah, and just as an aside during all this, having, you know, all the recent issues with Soyuz and people, right? I mean, we've kind of had uh, the, the MS-23 crew, right, have to basically, or I guess the MS-22 crew, sheltering on station. I mean, in this case, just for a few weeks until MS-23 flew up there, but on the uncrewed Soyuz as the uncrewed Soyuz, but yeah. So, so it's topical in that regard too, I think. <laughs> so in any event, uh, while Atlantis was being stacked, uh, Endeavor was going to be uh, readied uh, with an empty payload bay and sit at pad uh, 39B, and it would be able to launch within a week uh, if Atlantis ran into trouble. And so that was kind of the much quicker turnaround. And so you had the very cool uh, situation where there were two fully stacked space shuttles on two different pads simultaneously. And so just like amazing kind of pictures uh, of that happening. All right. So that's uh, the idea there. And how do you end up, you know, rescuing uh, an entire crew of people? Well, uh, the first step is to make sure you got enough seats available. There have been four seats fit into the mid-deck before. Uh, we had talked about on the show SDS-61A, where you had a, uh, this was an early uh, uh, space lab mission, and you had eight people that flew, four people upstairs on the flight deck, and then four people downstairs in the mid-deck. So you could have four seats in there. In this case, they'd be all lined up in a row. And then where are you going to fit 
Okay, so that's got four of the seven people on uh, STS-125. What about the other three? Well, they came up with this uh, these recumbent seats. And so these would be ones that could basically, it, it was like, it, was, it looks like a small pallet with three seats and you'd be lying on your back and they fit in what's called the ditch area of the, uh, the mid-deck. Let's say the shuttle is landed and it's, you know, sitting kind of, with uh, intuitive up, down, left, and right, right? Like it's, it's already landed, so you think of it that way. If you go into the side hatch and enter, to your left are all the lockers, the flight decks above you. On your immediate right is the, you know, the latrine. And then uh, further up and on the right is an avionics bay, avionics bay three, which is important kind of for later. <laughs> but in between them is a gap. And that gap uh, is either where the internal airlock used to be on early shuttle missions or just habitable space with uh, the uh, hatch to the external airlock uh, for later missions. And so in that ditch area is where you would put these three incumbent seats. And so you would have seven people, an entire crew, uh, all parked uh, on the floor of the mid-deck during this rescue mission, which is just pretty cool. And so without making a whole big thing about like everybody who was on 120, uh, STS-125, but, uh, um, I don't know exactly why they, how they would determine these, uh, who sits where. Um, I couldn't see any pattern, uh, cause like, uh, the, the pilot is stuck in the ditch area on the recumbent seats while the, uh, the special recumbent seats while the commander is just kind of parked in front. And so, I don't know, <laughs> maybe they put the bigger people in the front and then the smaller people <laughs> in the back. Um, I don't know how big Drew Fustel or Megan MacArthur and uh, the pilot are in terms of <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. body size, but yeah. So in any event, that's the uh, that's that's step one, I guess, right? Make sure you have enough room to get them there. Okay, but that's mm -hmm. great. But they can't just, you know, uh, apparate uh, from uh, Atlantis and reappear in Endeavor. So uh, uh, how do you actually get them there? Oh, oh, but real quick, sorry, before I get to that, there's one thing I missed here. SCS-125 got delayed, and it got delayed enough that it was like, for, for reasons of, you know, shuffling the orbiters around, that the STS-400 mission now fell to Discovery, because that was going to be, I guess, the next uh, uh, orbiter up and available. And so they designated that STS-401. And so for uh, a moment in time, Discovery was going to be the rescue spacecraft. But then... STS-125 got delayed yet again, right? There were a lot of delays in the shuttle era. And as a result, Endeavor came back uh, and continued to just be STS-400, uh, the designated launch on need for a potentially stricken Atlantis. Okay, so yeah, so how do you get the people from the lost orbiter uh, into Endeavor to make them uh, home in one piece? Well, what you need to do is go and have the uh, uh, shuttles approach each other, right? Or I guess Endeavor would be approaching Atlantis, um, doing an R-bar approach, so along the radial vector from you know the Earth to the spacecraft. And it would have the payload bays facing each other. And funny enough, uh, you know, Atlantis, you know, for all you know, right, you can't control the vehicle anymore, you know, and so they wanted to, you know, account for, you know, even that kind of situation. But even during that approach, you could still do a rendezvous pitch maneuver, in this case, of Endeavor. So Atlantis, right, the, the Hubble servicing crew would go and look at Endeavor and watch Endeavor do a hundred or 360 degree spin maneuver around the pitch axis. Um, to make sure that it didn't suffer TPS damage, which, you know, again, the shuttle is kind of like, 
you know obviously how much i love the shuttle but it's it's good that we don't fly it anymore because like yeah. my heart rate would spike anytime there was a shuttle mission if i were to watch them now well yeah but i mean like imagine if endeavor has issues like we get to a point where we have iss but it's all shuttles because we're afraid to bring them back home and we've just put one shuttle up after another extending this tower of hanoi chain out and out and out and out and we just have this big like all wings all control surfaces all heat tiles jumble what what was that one game where you like collected all the things katamari damacy yeah yeah but you have your big shuttle katamari but but like man you're totally right about blood pressure like the the fact that this was a fully planned out like actual contingency plan that included making sure that your rescue spacecraft didn't have the same problem it's kind of terrifying yeah so so in any event so Endeavor uh, would would come there, it'd do its RPM, make sure that it's looking like it's a safe, safe boat, a safe lifeboat. And then what it would do is it would use its RMS to grab at Atlantis's RMS joint. And so that is where the connection would be made between the two. So that's how they would be uh, mated to each other, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes uh, with my fingers. Tethered. Tethered, yeah. Cause, cause, and then they would literally tether them at, afterwards, right? And so a translation rope would be installed on <laughs> Endeavor's RMS and basically strung along, I guess, to uh, Atlantis. And so, okay, so you got to... But, but not a structural member right like it wasn't keeping it wasn't taking no load right yes right my understanding is that this would be solely so that you can have your astronauts that are getting transferred for them to you know be able to grab on hold on to and pull well probably also clip in there on their safety tether yeah because you would need the the structural arm right because if it was just a like a rope of some sort wouldn't there be like tidal forces yanking the shuttles in different directions like yeah. i don't think that they would stay stable well for very yeah long. but my first thought was you know those those tension uh tension member tables where you have the base of the table and the top of the table only connected by tension oh, members mm-hmm. like cables like that's what i was thinking is like oh do they do they have the arm there to provide compression stability and then they, you added some tension to keep the rotation but no that that's silly no, that's that's a cool thought it'd be cool yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no it's kind of terrifying because could you imagine like the amount of is it momentum the amount of inertia that these things have is mm. i mean troubling right mm-hmm. uh like if if they were moving towards each other at any speed, they would crush you between them. Like there's no, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that humans can exert enough force to to move a shuttle. And so like, if they're drifting apart, they're going to snap pretty much any cable <laughs> that, you know, mm-hmm. is worth sending up to space. And like, if that thing snaps, it recoils and just slices the two shuttles in half. Like it, that's terrifying. Yeah, and the only thing I can think to add to that is that like, ropes and cables behave funny in space yeah right like i think i think it was a it was a gemini mission or something where they were like oh we're just Mm -hmm. gonna string something behind the spacecraft and clearly it'll just be you know dragged behind it but indeed but instead it was yeah it was whipping around and i don't know almost strangled the the capsule i can't remember (laughs) the details but yeah it, it didn't behave like it was supposed to so yeah but uh but i mean also kind of uh impressive that the uh rms can 
kind of take that load, I guess, because I didn't read anything about uh, Endeavor firing, you know, doing much station keeping, I guess, with its RCS system. I imagine there might be some of that in there uh, happening. Yeah. So, so, and then, okay, well, obviously, right, you got to bring them across. Uh, uh, thank goodness they didn't plan to have those uh, little uh, terror balls that you would curl into the fetal position and climb into. And then, yeah. you know, that, that was an idea in the early shuttle days. Uh, I don't think those uh, physically existed anymore at this point. Like they might have been, um, I don't know, broken down to parts or put in a museum or wherever the heck they are. So, uh, no, instead, uh, you were going to have uh, four uh, EMUs, uh, right, spacesuits on Atlantis. Um, as you can imagine, a Hubble servicing mission, I mean, that was four spacewalkers that were going to be doing, you know, shifts of, you know, some serious spacewalking. And then... Uh, Endeavor would bring up two more. And then you would have this interesting way to just shuttle, <laughs> pun not intended, <laughs> uh, people from Atlantis to Endeavor. And uh, you do this over three EVAs. And um, the idea was like one of the one of them, I don't know if they entertain a bunch of different scenarios, but at least one that you can find. If you just go to the Wikipedia entry on STS-400, there's a great little graphic that shows one way that this could be done that would involve three EVAs. And it sounds like, you know, the people would be coming from uh, Atlantis to Endeavor uh, in their EMUs, and they would return a couple more of the uh, Endeavor EMUs back to Atlantis so that, I guess, while they're, you know, decompressing and, you know... Uh, uh, getting ready to climb out, uh, those extra EMUs that Endeavor brought, the remaining crew would be able to go and climb into. And so the first EVA would bring three people over, uh, the second one would bring two people over, and again, also return a bunch of these EMUs back to Atlantis. And then finally, the third EVA would have the final people come, uh, the final two, uh, I'm guessing the pilot and commander just because, right, the last person to leave the ship, you know, is the captain is the idea in a crisis like this. Uh, I didn't actually see that written anywhere, but I'm assuming that's the case. And then they would actually have to go and uh, drop off one of the EMUs as well so that uh, three of these very valuable pieces of equipment would end up uh, still on Atlantis uh, after the transfer was complete. And uh, so you might think, well, that's a shame because that's going to be the end of... Uh, uh, oh, and sorry. And, and one interesting thing, too, is that the uh, uh, after the last transfer, that they were going to stay uh, suited up and uh, in vacuum uh, in case that the... right no, but no one has ever... They've never had to have an orbiter grab another orbiter with an RMS <laughs> before. So what if you wound up with a problem there and had to have an EVA to physically decouple the RMS so that Endeavor could leave uh, in one piece and not come in as a Katamari-type uh, situation, which would not be any good, obviously. And so, yeah, so so they did that. That was the idea. And and so you think, okay, well, those those EVAs and Atlantis, you know, goodbye to that wonderful vehicle. Uh, obviously, they're going to have to destructively burn it up. But that's not the end of the story because uh, this is a uh, – orbiters cost a lot of money, if you didn't know. And so if you can save this national asset, you might as well try to. And so uh, the, the people – I think it was – yeah, the people, I guess, at the sale, the uh, Shuttle Avionics Integration Laboratory, they came up with this remote – control orbiter capability or RCO. And the idea is how can you, you know, like a Buran, how can you fly a shuttle back to the launch pad uh, automatically without any humans on board? 
And you can do that, but you need to modify uh, a few uh, panels in the flight deck. And it's specifically these things on the uh, uh, final approach that were the, uh, the biggest kind of risk factors, the things that you couldn't do remotely from the ground. And so they came up with this cable, and it's a 28-foot-long cable, 5.4 uh, pounds. And what you would have is uh, 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 an in-flight maintenance procedure, an IFM procedure, I guess that's uh, what they would call this. And you would plug it into that aforementioned Avionics Bay 3, um, which is the one to the side of the ditch, uh, specifically the Ground Control Interface Logic Avionics Box. And then you plug the other end, it splits into a few different parts of the flight deck panel. So you kind of rip off the panels, I guess, and then plug these in where the commander and pilots would be normally pressing switches. And instead, uh, this, pow this cable would be able to have the avionics bay provide the power and as well as upload software and essentially control these flight deck uh, procedures, uh, procedural kind of things. And so the five things that it needed to control, and there were five risks if associated that uh, with it if it if they weren't controlled <laughs> correctly, uh, one is to uh, start and run the APUs, um, where the risk is if that doesn't work, you're going to lose the orbiter in the ocean. Okay. Uh, the second one is the air data probe deploy controls, uh, where if you don't get that to work, that is basically right at the nose cone. These are near the nose of the orbiter. These pitot tubes come out from underneath their little TPS guarded cubbies. Um, but if those didn't come out uh, when the orbiters come roaring in at Mach 5, then you might lose the orbiter within the landing site. You would need to have the main landing gear arm and uh, come down uh, on its own uh, remotely. Uh, if you don't do that, the risk is you lose the orbiter on the runway. Uh, you would need to deploy the drag chute, uh, where the risk is if you don't do that, you would damage the orbiter uh, if it went past the runway, um, which uh, uh, almost happened, well, did happen once or sorry, it didn't overrun the runway, it landed short once, but it was at Edwards. And then finally, the fifth kind of thing that they needed to be able to control remotely was uh, the fuel cell reactant valve closing. Um, so turning off the fuel cells after you land. Otherwise, uh, you would lose the orbiter on the runway, potentially even after it's you know parked and still, because these fuel cells would overheat if they're just roaring and doing their thing, uh, even when you're parked and trying to get, uh, you know, you need to turn it off, essentially. So these are things that typically, you know, the crew, like, would do. I mean, the, the commander and pilot in particular. Like, I think, uh, speci like, specifically the pilot is the one who would actually uh, uh, deploy the drag chute. But uh, in any event, uh, you would pull out the, the panels, you would have these uh, cables plugged in there, and then you would go and do that transfer thing that we had talked about. Yeah, so this uh, remote-controlled orbiter, uh, Atlantis in this case, would go and land at uh, Vandenberg, uh, the idea being that there's uh, more ocean on the approach because uh, whatever caused it to be stricken in the first place means it might not survive re-entry. And so if you're going to have it coming in and not survive, you would want uh, any debris to fall over the ocean as opposed to populated areas. Um, but apparently they were willing to risk uh, damaging Vandenberg's support facilities and the runway <laughs> uh, to try to save a shuttle, which, I mean, I guess kind of makes sense because the shuttles are very, <laughs> very expensive uh, and very unique vehicles. And presumably whatever struck uh, made it needed to be salvaged on orbit was going to be something, you know, related to, you know, it taking damage to its TPS or an MMOD strike. And as a result, that's nothing that renders the 
orbiter itself necessarily uh, worthless, and you could presumably reintegrate it back into your fleet. So in any event, though, if you didn't know, STS-125 flew fine, and STS-400 did not need to actually launch, and so that was good. <laughs> and yeah, as a result, Endeavour and Atlantis are happy and healthy to this day, uh, respectively, at... Uh, uh, in Florida, and then Endeavor is going to be the one that's going to be stacked vertically with a remaining external tank and SRBs at uh, in, in LA, which is I can't wait until that happens. That's going to be absolutely incredible. Yeah. So yeah, that's a data relay. Thanks for letting me yap about this. Wow. I know I talked for a while. So that was an awesome data relay. And now let's do it this week in spaceflight history. <laughs> um, so Ben, you got this one. And we have six winners. Um, yes, yes. We have Chubby Dracozzi, Cy Kyle, Uncle Willie, Deathkin, the Greek, and Hydrak. The clue was slap a Renaissance painter. So interesting, provocative clue. <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah, I was a little worried that I actually got the clue uh, messed up, but I didn't. I guess I don't need to express that moment of panic. But <laughs> All right, so this week in spaceflight history is the 14th of March, 1986. Uh, the event was Giotto, the spacecraft, flying past 1P Haley, also known as Haley's Comet. Um, thank you to Peter McMally on Twitter for uh, suggesting this inadvertently. I believe Peter guessed incorrectly to a different TWSF, Uh And I was like, oh, that's a good enough event. I'm going to go ahead and throw it in our document. And that was back in 2021. So like two whole years ago, almost to the day. <laughs> so pretty cool. Uh, okay. So I'm, I'm going to try to keep this a little short. There's not too much interesting to talk about for Giotto. It was a pretty straight-laced mission that did a lot of really cool science and things, but like from my engineering uh, nerd standpoint, th there just isn't a lot on the internet talking about it. But uh, Halley's Comet is like super, super old uh, in terms of like human uh, understanding. It was um, discovered in prehistory, like it was originally observed before humans got into like written history. And it was just like this thing that we knew about, but nobody really knew that it was the same thing happening over and over. It was, uh, you know, the a comet would show up, there's a bright light in the sky. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, it portends a king being killed or something. Who knows? But there's a, a pretty decent amount written on these, quote unquote, different comets over the years. Um, Aristotle, uh, you know, the famous idiot, uh, believed that comets were, in fact, atmospheric disturbances. Um, and then noted partier uh, Tycho Brahe uh, proved him wrong. And I think that's, this was like the first person to like really show that Aristotle was wrong about this, um, by, uh, doing parallax measurements. And he wasn't be able to be very precise, but he was able to show that it was indeed farther away than the moon. And then aside from the idiot Aristotle, we have documentation in cuneiform, like on tablets, uh, that is probably referring to Halley's Comet. It kind of, a bunch of different things kind of match, but the, the dates are a little fuzzy, so we're not exactly sure. Um, but that would have been back in 164 BC. And then we have, um, ancient Greece writings that talk about it when it arrived in 167 BC. Oh, I'm sorry. It's in terms of, of like written records. Um, it was, accurately documented uh in babylon back in 164 bc which was like written in cuneiform on clay tablets right which is like 
such, I, I, I love how, uh, technical cuneiform is like it was used for accounting and things like that. And it's just makes me happy. Um, and then it was likely even, um, documented earlier than that, uh, in ancient Greece, uh, around 167 BC, but the dates aren't exactly clear. So we're not a hundred percent sure that that is, you know, this comet, it, it might've been another comet, but anyway, uh, Edmund Haley is credited with the, you know, the actual quote unquote discovery. Really it's the characterization, I guess. Um, but, uh, Edmund Haley recognized that all these earlier sightings were actually the same comet. Um, and so he went off and talked about it with his, buddy Newton, who was busy, um, coming up with explanations for planetary motion. Um, and, uh, Haley presented all of his evidence in 19, in 1696, like very early on. And back then in, in the 1690s, he was able to predict, uh, the next perihelion, which happened in 1759. Um, Haley went so far as to incorporate disturbances, uh, by Jupiter and Saturn, um, in changing the period of the comet. Um, and he incorporated, he used those to explain previous perturbations and then use them to predict the perihelion in, in 1759. So, uh, the comet Haley has a period of about 75 years. It wobbles back and forth because it's such a long period. It doesn't take much to push it left or right. So in chunks of 75 years later, the perihelion in 1986, uh, which is the one that we're currently talking about, uh, was literally the worst perihelion on record. Um, I think they actually call them apparitions, right? Like observing opportunities. Um, basically it's perihelion happened on the opposite side of the sun from the earth, which is like when it's going to be, um, the biggest and brightest. And so overall, um, the, our ability to see the comet, uh, in 86 was the worst, even like theoretical viewing since, or for, for the previous 2000 years, um, which really sucks because in 1986 humans had invented this really cool machine called a rocket. And like, we could actually go take a look at these things and the darn, <laughs> the darn mm -hmm. comets on the other side of the sun. Well, so uh, we decided to go check it out anyway. We kind of didn't have much of a choice. And so humanity kind of built this fleet of vehicles, um, like an international cooperation happening. Um, and there was, uh, to me, a shocking amount of coordination between three major organizations, um, Japan, Russia, and the European Union. So I'd like to go through all of these before I get to Giotto. Um, and I'm going to go through them in reverse order of their closest approach. So the farthest one is uh, Sakagake, um, which was actually Japan's first uh, extraplanetary vehicle. I say extraplanetary, not intraplanetary, because it basically got out of Earth's orbit, and that was kind of it. Um, and Sakagake got to see the, uh, the comet from the close, close distance of 7 million kilometers. Um, and so it, it collected a bunch of reference data, um, in theory to like contextualize the data from the other vehicles. But, you know, those other vehicles are going to be able to collect data on their way to the comet. So it doesn't really, uh, justify this as its own standalone mission. Uh, but in reality, you know, they're, they're doing these, it, this iterative launch style that really is the, 
the ticket to success. So after Sakagake, Suise flew. Uh, Dennis, did I pronounce this correctly? Am I at least close? Yeah, Suise. Okay. It means it means comet or water star, but like specifically there you go. Comet. And Sakagake, I think, means like pathfinder or scout or something. And so Suise um, is basically the exact same vehicle. Um, they had a couple of different instruments. One of them was uh, a UV imager that actually used a CCD, which is pretty neat. Um, so we say approached within 151,000 kilometers, quite an improvement. It also detected two dust impacts when it was close uh, to the comet, which is pretty neat. So after those two Japanese missions, uh, there was another pair of missions. These were uh, Russian missions, Vega 1 and Vega 2. And uh, Vega 1 and Vega 2 weren't just sent out to look at the comet. I believe we talked about both of these in terms of their earlier accomplishment, which was visiting Venus. And both vehicles um, dropped a, a lander and a balloon into the atmosphere. Um, and I just, I adore these balloons so much. It's something that we talk about as if it's something we could do in the future. And I think it's really a shame that we don't talk about the fact that we've already done it uh, in the past. So Vega 1 had its closest approach on the 6th of March. Um, we're talking about Giotto's uh, close approach being on the 14th, so like rewind a week. Uh, Vega 1 is on March 6th, and it gets within uh, 9,000 kilometers. And then Vega 2 uh, is just a few days later on the 9th of March, and that got down to 8,000 kilometers. Both Vegas took... Uh, like distant images, like early images when they were something like 14, 15 million miles away. Um, and then when they get closer, they have this period of, of data collection that was about three hours on either side or three hours centered on the closest approach where they're just taking uh, as much data as possible, literally five, six, seven hundred images. And what's really interesting is Vega 2 didn't get quite as close as Vega 1 did, but because of the timing um, as the comet is approaching the sun, um, Vega 2 actually got better images from farther away. There just wasn't quite as much dust being blown off uh, at that point. And I think it's it's a variable uh, problem here. I think what happened is that uh, before the Vegas arrived, um, it had puffed off a lot of dust. Vega 2 comes in in this like clean period and takes some nice photos. And then the comet puts out more dust before Vega 1 gets there. Vega 1 gets closer, but can't take quite as clear photos. The reason I say that I think this is the way it's working is because Vega 2 had uh, much more limited power generation from its solar panels when it's closest to the comet. It had a power loss of 80%, whereas Vega 1 had worse photos, got closer, but it only had 40% power loss. Like its uh, solar panels were only shaded out 40%. So I, I think there must have been a shell that was expanding that they dipped inside. Yeah, kind of an interesting situation. And I'm sure that there was lots of head scratching at the time. Uh, so all of these vehicles form the Haley Armada is what they called it. Um, Chubby in the chat says it's kind of funny that Armada means Navy. Um, like in Spain, it means Navy in English, but it also means Navy in Spanish. But the word for army in Spanish is Ejercito. Uh, so this is army. Armada doesn't mean <laughs> Navy. Ejercito. Okay. So the, the star of the Haley Armada is Giotto. Uh, it's the, it's the dive bomber. So I guess, uh, Chubby, if you know the Spanish word, 
for Air Force, we can bring that in too. Uh, so Giotto was named after Giotto di Bandone, who uh, was an astronomer. He uh, observed the 1301 perihelion. He was also an artist. Um, in particular, there's a fresco where he painted um, the um, the manger scene from Jesus's birth. What's that called? The nativity scene? The, the nativity. Yeah, there you go. So he, he painted a fresco, the nativity, um, that has uh, a comet in the background uh, instead of, you know, the traditional star. He's like, oh, I, I know what this was. It was a it was this comet. Uh, Giotto, the spacecraft, not the artist, uh, launched in uh, 1985 on the 2nd of July. And this this whole lead up to Giotto arriving um, was actually useful here. Um, Giotto was able to tweak its trajectory just a little bit based on data from both of the Vega probes, which were able to better characterize where the nucleus is. Now, Giotto got to within 596 kilometers quite close when you compare it to the other two, less close when you compare it to um, some of the other probes that ESA has uh, put on uh, on comets. Giotto protected itself using a Whipple shield. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this in the past, um, but Whipple shields uh, were used on Stardust, um, and they are also actually used on the ISS. I think three, three different modules on ISS have uh, Whipple shielding. Uh, all on the U.S. segment. So Giotto's Whipple shielding is a one millimeter thick aluminum sheet that then has a 23 centimeter gap behind it and then a 12 millimeter thick Kevlar sheet. So the idea is that the aluminum isn't the strongest material ever. And I don't believe it's pure aluminum. I think it's, I think it's, it's designed so that it's harder and maybe even more brittle than standard aluminum. But the idea is, that the aluminum actually like shreds and breaks up um, most anything that's uh, going to hit the shield. And then the Kevlar can soak up those smaller fragments um, if they get past the aluminum. Um, and this Whipple shield, um, actually, I think it was just the aluminum was designed uh, to be able to soak up something traveling uh, like at the speed of a bullet. Um, up to about a gram. And Dennis, did you did you figure out when we talked about Whipple Shields? Yeah, it was uh, Stardust on episode 191. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, this shield was not installed for nothing. <laughs> um, they actually uh, were pretty happy to have it, uh, I believe. So uh, Giotto was hit um, multiple times, um, like uncountable times it was hit with, uh, you know, detectable dust. But there were two notable impacts that actually did damage. So one impact uh, actually destroyed the Haley multicolor camera. And thank goodness this happened after the vehicle had already made its closest approach. So it didn't disrupt their uh, their close-up photography. Um, and then another impact was powerful enough, or at least off-center enough, um, to actually push the vehicle off of its spin axis. So Giotto was spin stabilized and we'll, we'll put some good photos in the show notes, um, because Issa's actually got a lot of really great photos of this thing. Um, and it's basically shaped, uh, like, like a bullet, like a bullet without the cartridge. Um, it's got, 
a cylindrical lower section and like a conical upper section. Um, and, uh, the conical upper section isn't enclosed, but it does have these three arms that hold, um, part of the, the dish antenna that sits on top. But, but the whole thing flies dish last, right? The shield is on the bottom of it and, uh, it's spin stabilized. So interestingly enough, uh, Sakagake and Suisse actually had two different spin stabilization rates. They had a, an antenna that was despun and then two different segments. One spun at like 0.3 RPM and the other one was like at three or four RPM. I mean, it was not, not a huge difference, but I mean, it was different enough that like they actually were spinning at different speeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, Giotto, uh, maybe not unfortunately, less interestingly, <laughs> Giotto, <laughs> um, just had one, uh, spin stabilization. Uh, section. And so, right, it's spin stabilized. It wants to point in the same way and it doesn't want to spend fuel to, to maintain that pointing. Um, and one of these impacts was strong enough to push its spin axis, push against the gyroscopic force, keeping it in, pointed in the same direction and, and shoved it off axis. Um, and, it took 32 minutes to reestablish contact with the Earth, which I think uh, it's fair to say it took 32 minutes to get back to the correct attitude. And I, w- I would really love to see some analysis on this recovery or m- maybe even just recovery design. Because like, is that 32 minutes because it's having to push against its gyroscopic stabilization? Is that 32 minutes because that's just how far off axis it was? Like, I don't think it despun, um, but maybe it had to to add some more spin after a lot of that got dumped into like, I don't know, like it would be, it'd be really interesting to see what their recovery strategy is that the, that the spacecraft actually does on board. I agree. That would be fascinating to see the real nitty gritty details of how that, how that works. Cy Kyle in the chat is actually, I really agree with this. Uh, Kyle says, honestly, a half hour recovery for something like that in the 1980s seems pretty good. Actually, you know what? I, now that you say that, yeah, you're probably right. This was probably the tiniest amount of, uh, of bump. So, uh, it, it's really tough to say w- what actually hit Giotto. Oh, oh, well, we know it's a piece of comet, right? But it's hard to say, uh, how big it was. The estimates are an entire order of magnitude. Come on, guys. <laughs> the estimates are between, uh, 0.1 to 1 grams in mass. And the, the variability really just comes down to we don't know how fast it was moving. Um, there's also probably a little bit of unknown in uh, estimating how much kinetic energy it actually imparted to the spacecraft. But um, ESA thinks that it was hit hard enough that it actually probably took a chunk out of the vehicle. And, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Um, this impact was enough to bring parts of the spacecraft out from behind the shield, or I guess to move the shield to the side, whichever way you want to look at it. But yeah, it, it could have had additional uh, science instruments taken out while it was off axis, and, and thank goodness it didn't. Um, so Giotto has a lot of firsts to its name. Uh, it's the first vehicle to take detailed images of a cometary nucleus, and the images are really gorgeous. Um, they are definitely... A, a little fuzzy. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the best photo, but it's still a shockingly good photo of 
uh, a comet way back in 86. Really cool. Um, Giada was also the first vehicle to ever perform a gravity assist using Earth. Um, that also makes it the first vehicle to go out to interplanetary space and return back to Earth. Those two kind of go hand in hand. And uh, visiting Haley wasn't the only thing that Giada did. Uh, in 1990, it also flew past uh, the comet Griggs-Skellerup. And between those times, it also set another record uh, for hibernation. So they actually put the thing into a low power mode for years, right? To, to go from uh, uh, 86 all the way to 1990. But yeah, uh, Giotto is... Uh, a really interesting set of firsts and it's also uh the end of a long train of international cooperation it's just it's a, it's a pretty cool mission uh the clue for this week was uh slapping a renaissance painter and yeah obviously it refers to uh giotto getting dinged hard enough to to push it off axis and i just i like the imagery of giotto the painter standing painting a fresco or something beautiful and getting slapped and just spinning around you know 360 before falling to the floor you know in whatever robes or you know the big italian like flowing <laughs> artist gown or whatever but there you go that's this week in space flight history well, thank you very much ben for that wonderful twist if where not only is giotto so interesting but i love the whole like that we sent an armada to this <laughs> this comet you know internationally yeah. all these missions at once i hope he can do something like that again that would be really fun so, David, next week is the 21st to the 27th of March. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Uh, so the clue is in 2006. It's fine. It's in what we call a storage orbit, quote-unquote storage orbit. Well, if you have a uh, quote-unquote guess for what you think that <laughs> uh, clue is referring to, <laughs> then feel free to uh, tweet at us with the hashtag... Uh, this week SF or send us an email and good luck. Good luck. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, the upcoming spaceflight events. We got a bunch of those. We got seven launches. Uh, I mean, we'll see if they all launch, but um, seven on the books for right now. So what's the first one, Dennis? Well, for our most avid listeners who uh, download and listen to the episode immediately when it's released, you might be able to catch mm -hmm. on Tuesday evening, uh, March 15th, a Falcon 9 that will be taking CRS-2 or SpaceX-27, the cargo mission. And so this one, uh, of course, uh, is a Falcon 9. It's going to be flying out of the Cape uh, to... Meet with the station, and it has an instantaneous window at 0130 UTC. And also not seven launches, I guess six, and then one other thing. Yeah, and then after that, um, you can watch coverage of the SpaceX 27 cargo vehicle docking. So on the 16th, uh, the coverage of the docking will begin at 6.15 a.m., uh, and that's Eastern time, of course, and the docking itself is scheduled for 7.52. So, yeah, you could uh, watch that on NASA TV. Uh, then for uh, the... Still avid, but less uh, frothing uh, listeners. If you are the kind of person who listens to the show uh, on your morning commute on Wednesday, uh, then you still have time uh, if you're on the uh, on the East Coast uh, to watch the Artemis moon mission uh, spacesuit reveal. So this is um, Axiom's spacesuit, uh, and NASA is doing a thing on NASA TV to uh, to show it off. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. It turns out we got a couple of Axiom employees in the chat, uh, who like 
pointed this out a couple of days ago and they're like really excited. And now I'm like really excited. Uh, I do love a good spacesuit reveal. We've had more spacesuit reveals than new spacesuit like first uses in the last couple of years um but i i still haven't soured on the concept of a uh, spacesuit reveal so that's happening on wednesday march 15th at 10 30 a.m eastern time you can watch it on nasa tv and also on march 15th we've got a long march 11 taking who knows what to orbit and so these uh <laughs> long march 11s are the uh these small launch vehicles and this one's flying out of Jiuquan which is the uh pad in China uh, in Inner Mongolia and it has a launch window again on March 15th from 11:36 to 11:56 UTC. And then after that on March 16th we have we have an electron launch with the beat goes on and I'm not sure what the meaning behind that particular mission is, or the name of that mission is. Something to do perhaps with the Black Sky satellites that they're launching. I don't see the connection. But anyway, <laughs> the uh, launch window for that, uh, again, on the 16th from 0245 UTC on the 16th to 1415 UTC. So a uh, big launch window. Um, and that is launching from Onanui Station. Uh, and that's on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand from Launch Complex 1A. So watch that one as well. And that's going into a sun-synchronous orbit. After that is Good Luck, Have Fun, uh, which is the maiden flight of Terran 1, uh, launched by or built by Relativity Space. Uh, they got delayed again. Um, so Good Luck, Have Fun is flying on Thursday, March 16th uh, at 1700 hours. The window continues out uh, to 2000 hours um, this window is not their actual launch window. It's just based on the maritime navigation warnings that have been published. And then on Thursday, March 16th, we have a West Coast Falcon 9 Block 5. That'll be taking Starlink Group 28 to LEO. And so, like I said, this will be coming uh, launching out of Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base in California. And it has a window from 1805 UTC on March 16th, stretching into zero uh, hundred thirty UTC on March seventeenth. Two days later, on the other side of the country, there's another Falcon <laughs> Nine Block Five, two satellites for Northrop Grumman, the SES eighteen and nineteen uh, communication satellites. The launch window or the launch time for that, it looks like it's instantaneous, is twenty four thirty five UTC, and that's launching from Slick Forty at the Cape, and that's going into a geostationary transfer orbit. So that's cool. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that's all of them, and that means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Jonesy, Leon, Running Man, The Greek, Chubby, Cy Kyle, Chris, A.K. Sty Garfield, Mike, and Dax Headroom for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com/support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.